You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Scripture reading this afternoon comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 4, beginning at verse 24, right in the middle of the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar has had and that Daniel interprets, and then we'll also see in the last part of this chapter how that dream is fulfilled. We begin then with verse 24. Listen to the word of God. This is the interpretation, O king, Daniel says, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord, the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he pleases or wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king... Be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. He said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails were like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. 
Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as you find it summarized in the first part of Lord's Day 13. Why is he called God's only begotten Son? Because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, the other day I had to write another editorial for Clarion, our unofficial church magazine. I decided to write about preaching to coincide with the fact that our seminary in Hamilton is hosting a preaching conference in January of 2012. So what did I write about preaching? Well, to find out, you should actually subscribe. However, I will give you a peek. For among other things, I wrote that preaching is about digging. Believe it or not, it's somewhat akin to taking a shovel out of your shed, going into your backyard, and proceeding to dig a deep, deep hole. Preachers are supposed to be good diggers. Only you will understand that this is not meant to be taken literally. After all, very few Canadian Reformed ministers or preachers know what blisters even look like, much less feel like. Some of us have only experienced them way back in our student days. As I know, in some ways, we preachers are a pampered bunch. But getting back to the matter at hand, Preachers are supposed to know how to dig. Only they're not supposed to be digging so much in their gardens as they're supposed to be digging in the scriptures. It's part and parcel of our calling to take the word of God, pray over it, continually examine it unceasingly, reflect on it constantly and preach it unflinchingly. We're supposed to be digging in it and then showing you and sharing with you the treasures and the riches that we find. Our aim is to make you ultimately realize just how rich you are. Rich in grace, rich in blessings, rich in God. And at the same time, we need to understand that while our digging as preachers is to be done in the Bible, the Heidelberg Catechism helps us to and guides us in this digging. Take, for example, this afternoon as an example. We've come to Lord's Day 13 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What's it about? Well, two things, really. Jesus, as the only begotten Son of God, and Jesus Christ, as our Lord. The, the first designation is explained and applied in question and answer 33, the second in question and answer 34. Now, it's this first designation that's going to hold our attention today, as well as, as next Sunday afternoon, the Lord willing. Today, we're going to pay attention to the Son, 
to the Son of God, to the only begotten Son of God. Next Sunday, we'll look at our sonship, at our adoption into God's family. The Sunday thereafter, we pay attention to Jesus as Lord, the Lord of all things, and also our Lord. And then it's on to Christmas Day and Lord's Day 14, the birth of Christ by the Spirit and of Mary. So really what we're going to do is we're going to really stretch Lord's Day 13, stretch it over all of these Advent Sundays and use it as a lead up to Christmas. Or if you will, we're going to impose Advent on the Catechism. And in line with that, my theme this afternoon is this. Catechism Advent, the Son of the Most High. So Catechism Advent, the Son of the Most High. Well, beloved, here in Lord's Day 13 of the Heidelberg Catechism, as we said, it's busy explaining words and expressions found in the Apostles' Creed, and in particular, those words, His only begotten Son. What does it mean that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God? And the answer that you receive in the catechism is, he is the eternal, natural Son of God. Now you and I need to reflect on those words, those few words carefully. They're saying, first of all, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In other words, it's describing a relationship between him and God the Father, and it's dealing with something very close, intimate, personal, affectionate, even mysterious. He is the Son. He is the Son of the Heavenly Father. But yet he is also eternal, for he's called the eternal Son of God. And this means he's always been, and he always will remain so. Nothing can or ever will change this. Christ has been, is, and will forever be the Son of God. And in addition, he's also something else, for he is the eternal, natural Son of God. Now here we often get into trouble. For we read that word natural and, and we think of things like birth, like flesh and blood, of, of what we are as physical people, only that's a mistake. For natural here means that Christ shares the nature of his Father. Of course, in time, he comes to share our nature as well, but, but here it refers to his divine nature, to that special nature that he shares with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. So in a way, all of this points us to his uniqueness. It's true, as we'll see next week, the Lord willing that, that we too are sons and daughters of God. There, there is a sense in which he is a son and we all who believe are sons as well. And yet amidst all of this sonship business, he always and ever will remain unique, different, exceptional, incomparable. 
He has always been and will be the only Son who is eternally so and who shares fully in the divine nature. You may know the Mormons. The Mormons teach and the Mormons believe that one day people are going to get divine. We don't believe that. We believe we're human, we'll remain human, although one day we're going to experience complete, utter, perfect, glorified humanity. So we say the Father is well on the way to to having many, many adopted, glorified sons and daughters. But he has only one natural son, one son, who shares his divine nature. And you know that message comes out loud and clear in the Christmas narrative as well. You look, for example, at Luke Chapter 1, verse 35, where the angel is speaking to Mary. And it says, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And now here, of course, Luke is speaking about the angel's words to Mary. The angel says basically three things. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, Mary. The power of the Most High is going to overshadow you, and the result will be that the Son of God will be born. Now, all of that's familiar to us. Some of you have probably heard it a thousand times. It's old hat, so to speak. Or is it? Have you ever pondered these words carefully? You know, they are, of course, saying that Jesus will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. They are, of course, saying that Mary is going to be his mother in some special, unique sense. But, you know, they're also saying something else. They're saying that Jesus will be the Son of the Most High. And indeed, it's saying that it's the power of the Most High that will make it happen. The Spirit will come, and through the Spirit will come this special power. And it will completely and utterly overwhelm and overshadow and capture Mary, if you will. The power of the Most High will make Jesus come into the world. So really, who is coming on Christmas Day? The one who comes is the Son of the Most High. You can call Jesus the only begotten Son of God. That's the language of John, as you find it in the first chapter of John's Gospel. You can also call him the Son of the Most High. That's the language of Luke, as you find it in his opening chapter. But you know, it's also something else, because all this language has a background and a history, an Old Testament background. You and I are familiar with quite a few of the names of God. You know him as El Shaddai, and perhaps as Adonai. Those two names have been popularized in some Christian songs. Maybe you know him as well as Elohim, the Creator God, and as Yahweh, the God of the Covenant. 
But yet I dare say that there's probably one name that we all tend to overlook or forget about. And do you know what it is? Have you ever heard of El Elyon? El Elyon means God Most High. Our God is God Most High. And you know, he's often described in the scriptures in this way. Just to give you a few examples. For example, go back to Genesis chapter 14. The Abraham gets a visitor. The visitor is called Melchizedek. And who is Melchizedek? He is priest of God Most High. And, and he blesses Abraham and, and says to him, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hands. That's chapter 14, the verses 19 and 20. Now, we may wonder about who is this Melchizedek character. But there is no need to wonder about who sent him. Melchizedek is sent by God Most High. By El Elyon. Another example or illustration. You can find it, for example, in Psalm 7. There, there, David is busy singing a psalm, and, and in it he sings, among other things, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, O Most High. Verse 8. My shield is God Most High. Verse 10. I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness, and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Verse 17. And you know, if you search just the Psalms, time and time again, you'll meet El Elyon. Verse 18, 21, 28, 46, 50, 57, 73, 77, 78. This morning we sang about him in 134, but he's not there. That's a bit of a mistake, you might say, poetically. But God, El Elyohan, is mentioned from one end of the Psalter to the other. Why, well, he's even mentioned in some most unusual places by some rather unusual people. For consider, for example, what we've read in Daniel chapter 4. Far away in Babylon, we hear Daniel say, This is the decree the Most High has issued. And we even hear mighty King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon say, I praise the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. You see, even in Babylon at that time, the greatest city in the known world, even there, the name of El Elyon is heard and praised and acknowledged. And now, beloved, it's against this background that we need to read and understand the words of the angel to Mary. As a good student of the Old Testament, this reference to the power of the Most High would not have left her guessing or wondering or speculating. 
She's heard about it often. She knew that his name, El Elyon, was sprinkled throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And she knew something as well, something else. She knew what this name meant. For what particular aspect or dimension of God's person as empowered as El Elyon refer to? It refers to him as the sovereign God. Not the God this time of creation, not the God of the covenant, not the God of the heavenly hosts, El Shaddai, but God as sovereign. He's the most high God. There is no one above him, no one beside him, no one who compares to him. He alone is it. He alone is exalted. And that designation, the Most High, also means that from where he sits in the heavens, he sees and guides and directs and determines everything. All nations, peoples, tribes, and tongues. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, an unbeliever, says about him, his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the people of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? You don't talk back to this God. You don't compare yourself to him. You don't put yourself on the same level as he is. I did that. I know all about that. I bragged and I strutted and I boasted about my kingdom that my power and my might and my glory had built. And he turned me into an animal. Or something like an animal. You see, our God, Adonai, Elohim, El Shaddai, Yahweh, is also El Elyon, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. Yes, and now, beloved, this great God uses his sovereign power to send his Son into our world. When Jesus Christ is born, the Son of El Elyon, of God Most High, He's born. And you know, Mary knows this. Later she sings, For the Mighty One has done great things for me. And you know, her song is full of his power over thrones and dominions and his abilities to raise the humble from the ash heap. 
And Zechariah the priest knows this too. When at last his son John the Baptist is born, then he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesies about his son and what he will do. And he says, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you'll go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. You see, Mary and Zechariah, they know about him. All about him. And by the way, so does the devil and his henchmen. In Luke 8, you may recall that, we come across a naked, demon-possessed man who sees Jesus coming to his part of the country, falls at his feet and, and shouts at the top of his lungs, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, don't torture me. What amazing words. Even the demon possessed know him. Even the underworld knows who he is. They all know about his power. His great, sweeping, sovereign power to do whatever he wills. And so, beloved, let there be no doubt also among us as to just whose birth it is that we are going to be celebrating this month. We're rejoicing in the coming of God's only begotten Son. We're rejoicing in the coming of the Son of the Most High God. And of all the gifts you'll receive at this time of year, Nothing compares to this miraculous gift. To think that that you and I receive such a sovereign Son and Savior. You know, you may be poor. You may have virtually nothing in terms of earthly assets, money, real estate, stocks and bonds, furniture, and fancy toys. But if, if you have Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, you are the richest person in the world. For then you have God's only begotten Son. And this Son of the Most High will save you, cleanse you, change you, strengthen you, keep you. And one day, Glorify you. He can. And he will. Because he is the son of El Elyon. Now that's almost it for this sermon. Although, there is something else. Something else to take note of here. And and you might call it a bit of a paradox. What do I mean? Well, I mean this. Here, here Jesus Christ comes into the world in the fullness of time as, as the Son of the Most High, but in no way is he received as such. Or does he look like it? His birthplace is a stable, 
or maybe a cave, we don't know for sure. His crib is a manger. His, his audience consists of lowly shepherds and despised foreigners and poor parents. His appearance apparently was nothing special. Isaiah says he, he has no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. As soon as he and his parents are going to have to skedaddle off to Egypt of all places to escape from the evil clutches of King Herod, And thereafter, he has to live in a little backwater town in the dumbest part of the country. So much for being the son of the Most High. So much for El Elyon. Yes, and this this nondescript living and existing continues. He comes to his own people and we're told they receive him not. He meets everywhere with misunderstanding, criticism, rebuke, opposition, even hatred. He has three short years in which to minister among God's people, and those are years filled with suffering and pain and sorrow and vengeful attacks. And where does it all end? It ends on a cross. The son of El Elyon is crucified. He's murdered. Later, the Apostle Paul comments on all of this by saying about Jesus Christ, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. You see, the Son of the Most High becomes the Son of the Most Low. A sovereign becomes a servant. A servant becomes a sacrifice. And what a surprising outcome. Who would or could have predicted this? But all the while, God the Most High knew. He knew what he was doing. He had a plan and he stuck to it. Even to the bitter end. Only what looked like the end was not really the end at all, for death did not destroy the son of El Elyon. Now again, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, in the end, the son of Al Alyon will really be El Elyon, the Most High. The Father, it says, will exalt him to the highest place 
Every knee everywhere will bow before him. And every tongue will confess him as Lord. In short, one day, everyone, everywhere will see that he is sovereign and supreme. It will be Jesus Christ, the son of El, El Yon. So, beloved, take in the total picture here. Realize that this birth is for us a great, great cause for celebration. But then one day, there's going to be an even better reason to rejoice. And we need to get ready for that day. We shouldn't simply live in the past. We need to look forward to the future. And we need to make sure that our hearts and our lives are ready for that day. You and I can live, no matter what our circumstances or situation in life may be, we may live in joyful anticipation. Oh, and meanwhile, keep on praying for your digging pastors that they may dig well and that you may receive a steady diet of heavenly food and riches to munch on. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.